Well, does the name Ted Haggard sound familiar? Haggard founded New Life Church in Colorado Springs. It grew from 20 people to 14,000 people with a $50 million campus in 22 years. He was a a successful author and served as president of the National Association of Evangelicals from 2003 to 2006. He's also involved in politics, and he heavily supported Colorado Amendment 43 on the November 7th, 2006 ballot, which would have been a ban on gay marriage in Colorado. But things changed fast for Haggard. That same year, in response to his support for Amendment 43, a male prostitute named Mike Jones came forward and accused Ted of paying him to engage in sexual acts for three years and also of buying crystal meth from him. Even though this guy was an unbeliever, Jones's motivation was to expose Haggard's hypocrisy. He saw Haggard trying so hard to ban gay marriage, but he claimed that he was apparently engaged in homosexuality behind closed doors. And the sad part of the story is that this wasn't just some unfounded accusation in a political season, but that it was all actually true. Haggard denied it at first, but eventually admitted to the allegations and he resigned and was removed from his pastorate and his position as the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. After his fall, Haggard left ministry. He went into counseling. He had a two-year period of quiet healing, he says, in which he rebuilt his marriage and his life. He claimed to repent, and I think we all would agree that we would surely hope his repentance was sincere because the blood of Christ can pay for any sin. But there's just one problem in that, can you guess where Haggard is today? He's pastoring a church. After his healing process in 2010, Haggard and his wife returned to Colorado Springs and they planted St. James Church, which as of a few years ago had 300 in attendance. It's a church for those who are humbled and broken. And he feels that he's now more than ever able to leave them, or lead them rather, since he too is humbled and broken. And that now he's a compassionate minister. Haggard himself posted the following on his personal website. He said, quote, I may not be qualified to be a pastor, but I know I am qualified to serve others in need. I've learned a great deal over the last three and a half years and have a deep desire to help others in need. I do know much more than I did prior to my crisis in November of 2006. I know more about compassion, understanding, kindness, love, and peace. I want to help people, end quote. I don't think any of us would fault him for wanting to help people. Surely that's not the problem here. The problem here is that even though he knows he's no longer qualified to serve as a pastor, he's doing just that. He is back at pastoring a church. And we don't believe that fallen pastors are all permanently disqualified, but in his case, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. And I get his reasoning. He feels that because he has personal experience with this serious sin struggle, that he's now better equipped as a pastor who can, you know, handle and deal with people who have a similar struggle. But the only problem with this reasoning is that he thinks that God cares. He thinks that God cares that he can now better relate to sinners and that makes him qualified to pastor. Or that his personal experience with sin of this magnitude would make him more compassionate. And of course, we we understand that God wants compassionate ministers. That's not the point we're making. Just that God also demands something else from such men, and that is holiness and proven character. 
Psalm 101 verse 6 says, He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. Another word for blameless is above reproach. Just by very definition, he's not above reproach. He was, they, that guy brought a legitimate reproach against him. God's not concerned that you have firsthand experience with sin such that you can relate to sinners better. And granted, by no stretch of the imagination is any man or pastor perfect, but God still requires that his ministers be holy, blameless, and above reproach. And Haggard's greatest problem was that he failed to concern himself with God's qualifications for leadership. Even from the beginning, it doesn't seem like he was concerned with God's qualifications for leadership. And what are God's qualifications for leadership in his church? What is it, according to God, that qualifies a person to be a shepherd, a minister, a pastor over others? Well, it's not intelligence. It's not education or the number of degrees you have. Nothing in the Bible about that. It's not how funny you are or how entertaining you are, how easy you are to listen to. It's not how much money you have or how successful you are in the world. And it's certainly not how much sin you have experienced. It is character. Above all and and uh, far and away above all, it's just godly character. That's what God requires for leadership in his church. It's so counterculture, because in our world, that's seemingly what what matters the, the least. But in God's church and his people, what matters most in leaders is their character. And tonight, we're continuing on with this series on biblical leadership. And we're almost done with the first part. And if you remember, I, I told you this study would be divided into two, two halves, two parts. The first one's all about the preparation for biblical leadership. And the second part will be all about the practice of biblical leadership, getting into the, you know, the more of the practicals. Well, we're nearing the end of the first part. And as we've been studying all of these really foundational and fundamental issues in biblical leadership. And although this wasn't the, the first issue we studied, it's one of the most important. Namely, this is lesson seven. It's the character of biblical leadership. And that's what we'll be studying tonight. The character of biblical leadership. And when it comes to leadership in the church, few things matter more to God than character. Than just the character of the leader. It matters more than even his giftedness or ability. His character matters. In a way, we got a taste of this last week where when we studied the example of biblical leadership. Leaders in the church must lead by example, among other ways, but they must lead by example. This is where their ministry will either gain or lose all credibility. But now we want to return and really drill down on just how exactly should they be examples? In what areas should they be examples? What does God require of leaders in the church? What must their character be like? It's a no-brainer to say we're all still sinners, so sinless perfectionism is out of the equation. But still, what does God expect? What are his standards for leaders in the church from the elder and the pastor, even down to, you know, the music leader, the small group leader? What does God expect? Well, we're going to find out. And you can turn now to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And when it comes to the character of godliness that a leader must possess, Titus 1 
is a key passage. We could go to 1 Timothy 3 and, and other places as well. But Titus 1 will suffice for us in our time. We want to survey here, really just sample some of the chief character requirements for the church leader. Titus 1 verses 5 through 9 is the passage we'll be looking at. Let's, read, let's begin by just reading that through Titus 1, look at verse 5. Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, <clears throat> not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. <clears throat> now in this passage on elder qualifications, Paul delineates three categories of qualifications for leaders in the church. There's a pair of family qualifications, and then he moves into character qualifications, and he finishes with doctrinal qualifications. The the last category, doctrinal, we're going to save for a future lesson, but for now, we're going to look at the family qualifications, and we'll see how many of the character qualifications we can get through. Either way, you can plan on this study here, Lesson 7, the character of biblical leadership. will be a two-parter, because we're surely not going to get through all of these. We want to go through and give them each a little bit of time, looking at the portrait of the, the character of a biblical leader. To start off, though, we have to give one caveat, really explanation. If you know anything about Titus 1, and we just read it, really, you know that this passage is primarily directed toward whom in the church? Not a trick question. Yeah, elder, pastor, overseer. This this requirement, this list of qualifications is for the elder or pastor or overseer of the church. The same thing goes for the list of requirements in 1 Timothy 3. It's given to the elders and the overseers. But I will say this when we study passages like this, just to remind you that that doesn't mean this passage does not apply to you. Because even if you're not an elder of a local church, there are, there are several ways that this passage applies to you, and you still should take very seriously all of these character qualifications. So just before we get into them, I want to give you a quick, real quick, five reasons why you you need to study these elder qualifications, that that this is just as much for you. We'll be quick with these. Number one, this is how you should pray for your leaders. Or 1 Timothy 2, 2 directs us to pray for all of our leaders, all in authority over us. And especially for those in the church, you know that like Ted Haggard, and he, he was taken down. Leaders have the biggest target painted on their backs by the enemy, we would say. And so this is, this is how you can effectively pray for your leaders, that, that God would keep them above reproach in all of these categories and their character. Secondly, this is how you should look for leaders. Maybe you move or you need to find a new church and Well, this is where you start. You start at the top, examine their leadership, get to know 
the leadership in place? And are they character qualified? Before you worry too much about, you know, was the sermon really catchy or entertaining or just held my attention, we'll just start with the character of the leaders in place. I mean, after all, who cares if they're all, you know, rich, successful businessmen? Are they qualified per Titus 1, for example? Number three, this is how you should hold your leaders accountable. There's no sense of church leaders being above the law. They're to be above reproach, and and that leaves them open to examination, though. Everything leaders in the church say and do, that's open to accountability all the time. That's a good thing. We're all far from perfect, but this standard is given to guard against an elder living a life of unchecked double, or rather a double life of unchecked sin. And so it's good and right for you to know your leaders and hold them accountable to this standard for your sake and for the church's sake. Number four, this is how you should aspire to be a leader yourself. This list shows you what God values in the life of a leader. So for those of you here, as we're doing this little series on biblical leadership, aspiring to some form or some level of leadership in the church, maybe now, maybe later, well, this is for you. This is, just start here. You don't have to worry about preaching a sermon or doing something great. Just just start with your character. Make sure your character fits. This is what qualifies you to lead. Again, this is what God cares about. First and foremost, your character. So you start here and you build proven character. And few things are as valuable in life as proven character. And then lastly, number five, you know, this list, what, why study this list if you're not an elder? When you think about it, this is how you should just be a Christian. This is how you should just be a Christian. We think of these lists in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 as being elder qualifications, and, and they are. We also need to understand everything on these lists, with maybe a, a few exceptions like requiring a, an elder to be able to teach, but otherwise, you know, pretty much everything on these lists, elsewhere in Scripture, there are qualifications just for all Christians. This is simply what it looks like to be a godly, mature Christian. That's what God expects of elders, but doesn't mean that's not for you. I made this point several times, but there's, there's only one standard of godliness in God's eyes. What's that standard? What, what is our ultimate standard of godliness? Christ. It's Christ himself and Christ-likeness. That's, that's the standard. There's only one standard, one and only standard. And so you look at verse 7 again, for example. You look at some of these requirements. And so, because you're not an elder, is it okay then for the non-elder to be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, and greedy? Right? So you're not an elder, so that's okay. No. Now, we don't have time to do this right now, but if you were to do a word study in all of these requirements, you'd find you know, other passages, cross-references, where Pretty much every single one of them is used elsewhere and it's said to be true or required of just the church in general, just the body, all believers. So in reality, there's not one standard for elders over here, this really you know, supreme standard, and that's like there's another lower standard for average Christians. Now the picture of the New Testament is there's just one standard for all Christians. The standard is Christ. The difference is that elders are held to a higher accountability to the one and only standard. 
And that's because they represent the name of Christ more than others, given their office. But this standard applies to all Christians. So you can look at a list like this in Titus 1 and say, this is, this is for you. This is just as much for you. And especially those aspiring to leadership in the church, well, this is for you doubly so. And I can tell you for, for our local church, you know, we hold all forms of leadership to a high standard. Certainly elders and pastors, but even you know, music ministers, small group leaders, anyone in, even to a, to a degree, children's ministry leaders, and certainly children's ministry teachers, anyone in, in a, almost any form of leadership, we hold to a, a high accountability to the one and only standard. Well, that being said, we can return to this list now and start to go through it, see how far we get between this week and next, just to build up the portrait of the biblical leader. What, what, what type of character are we talking about here? There to be an example, what kind of an example? Well, let's start finding out. It begins in verse 6 as he gets in the qualifications. And there's and the overarching one. He says, namely, if any man is above reproach. This is an overall qualification. It likewise comes first and foremost in the list in 1 Timothy 3. Now, just real quick, in your own words, how, what does it mean to be above reproach? Blameless. Yeah, blameless is, is one of, that's what you said, right? Yeah, okay. Just want to, that's one of the, the best synonyms for it. Someone who is blameless, like we read this morning in Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his ways. And it does not mean sinless. That's the, uh, the, the, the trap some people fall into, like was saying he was sinless. No, he's not sinless. It just means there's no like area of rebellion in his life, in a person's life. There's no place in your life where you're just, you're still living in sin. Maybe we all stumble and fall short, but we repent. There's, there's no area of habitual sin in a person's life. They're uh, above reproach. It's kind of an umbrella term. This need to be above reproach would trickle down to all of these categories, all of these qualifications that are to come. Again, it doesn't mean sinless. If it meant sinless, no one could be an elder. There, there could be no elders. It certainly doesn't mean sinless. It means unaccused. You cannot bring a charge against someone. It's talking about someone with an unblemished reputation where others cannot bring any real charge of misconduct, nothing that would stick. I mean, people always will slander, but no one can bring any legitimate charge against the person because he is above reproach. He's upright and proven character. A person whose reputation is unblemished, their character is pristine, they're free from any disgrace. It's something we all should aspire to, right? All of us should be above reproach. Now, again, as you keep going, the rest of the qualities, that as the list goes on here and in 1 Timothy 3, they now are going to show us what the above reproach minister looks like. And so we'll move into that, the first category of qualifications he gives, and that's family qualifications. And there are two family qualifications listed here. We'll briefly cover these. <clears throat> We're trying to get more so to the, the character qualifications, but nonetheless, these matter and they're placed first for a reason. So two family qualifications. The first, being a godly husband or spouse, being a godly husband. Again, this comes right 
from verse 6. You can look there again. Speaking of these elder requirements, if any man is above reproach, then he says the husband of one wife. Now, the office of elder, as you know, is set aside for men. And so they're called to be the husband of one wife. Literally means being a a one-woman man. That's uh, the literal translation of this, being a one-woman man. Now, the elder does not have to be married. As far as we know, Paul was not married. And Paul, likewise here, he's not likely speaking against polygamy, because in that day, that was no longer really an issue. Instead, being a one-woman man just means living faithfully with your spouse, with your one wife. It's the picture of a man committed to his wife who's faithfully fulfilling that role. Why do you think this matters so much? Why do you think God cares so much about the marital life of church leaders? Like, hey, as long as he's getting the job done, he's preaching, you know, great sermons. Who really cares about his home life or his marriage? Why do you think God cares so much about the, the, the minister's, the leader's marriage? It reflects a relationship that, that he has with Christ and that Christ has with the church. It's, it's a, a mark on his character, a credibility issue. Christ and the church are supposed to be, you know, one in a loving relationship. And if a man's marriage is falling apart, what does that say about his ability to, to shepherd that church, to lead that church? <clears throat> so it really becomes a, a credibility issue, a faithfulness, faithfulness issue. <clears throat> Shepherding the flock of God requires singular devotion and commitment and faithfulness to the sheep. So it boils down to, if you have someone who is not faithful to his you know, primary sheep, so to speak, <clears throat> the husband being called to shepherd his wife, if you can't faithfully shepherd <clears throat> one sheep, well then, you know, forget about trying to faithfully shepherd many more, uh, the bride of Christ. And so the basic application to all leaders, that if your marriage is falling apart, just Go work on that. Leave everything else. Ministry will run just fine without you, but get your own house in order. Show love for your spouse as Christ loved the church. Just start there. Make sure you are faithfully fulfilling your marital role, both as a witness and a proof of your commitment to Christ, your faithfulness to Christ. Again, this, this is what qualifies someone to lead. Shown faithful with little things like your own home, you can be entrusted with shepherding more, a whole church or, or other people. This is going to go hand in hand with the next family requirement of being a godly father, a godly spouse, a godly father. He says, having next the husband of one wife, and he says also having children who believe. That's in the NASB, having children who believe. Now, do elders have to have believing children? Of course, I'm going to say elders, we've already talked about this, right? This is primarily for elders, but in principle, these requirements are all going to apply to even non-elder leaders. But are elders disqualified if their children do not have faith? Some hold to this view. We do not. This phrase can just as equally be translated faithful children as in the New King James. Speaking of children who are just faithful and obedient to their parents, And we're not going to take the time to argue this right now. It would be quite a detour. I did preach on Titus 1 way back when I first came to this church. So you can get the Titus 1 sermon on this passage and find 
the, the longer argument as to why we believe this. But we take this as Paul saying the elder must not have just wild, out-of-control children, but rather faithful children, obedient children, as he clarifies in verse 6, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And this really fits the parallel verse in 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, where he says of the elder, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And couldn't say it better myself. It really just lays it out. If you can't manage, if you can't, the word for that is steward. If you can't be a steward of your own home, your own family, and your own kids to shepherd them, to lovingly guide them, uh, then you really can't hope to do so for the church. So just start in your home. The same principle applies. If a person's children are, and household are out of order, they're just not qualified to shepherd the flock of God. Hey, it doesn't mean they never will be. Maybe in three, five years they will. But look, for now, just focus on your family. God cares about the family. We see that in both of these lists. Again, like in the corporate world, a guy can be an adulterer. He can leave his children. He can have multiple affairs. But as long as he's making the company lots of money, no one really cares. No one really cares about his personal life. He's not going to lose his job over these things, typically. But not so in God's church. That this is, it's not a job, it's ministry and, and character matters above all. And so let this be a real reminder for all those in leadership, for all those aspiring to leadership, this is, this is you know, home base. This is your bread and butter. You, you, you don't miss the boat here, otherwise you're in trouble and the church is going to be in trouble as well. So we have at the beginning these two family qualifications Almost you might say these are pre-qualifications. A man should not even enter ministry without his household in order to begin with. But next we'll move into some of these character qualifications. Keep, uh, as we continue in verse 7 here, there are, he starts off with five negative qualities. These are five you know, qualities to avoid. And I think that's as far as we'll get today. And then after that, there are uh, the, the positive qualities that we want to put on. And the six positive qualities. But for now, we'll, we'll just round this time out and look a little more in detail at these five negative qualities to avoid when it comes to a leader's character. The first one here is a big one. He kind of resets the stage, verse 7. For the overseer, you notice how he's using elder and overseer uh, synonymously here. For the elder seer must be above reproach. He repeats it. As if it wasn't important enough, that's the second time he says they must be above reproach. As God's steward, and then the first negative requirement, not self-willed. Not self-willed. It's the first negative character quality we would say to avoid. Not self-willed. Now, again, not, not your question, but in your own words, what does it mean to be self-willed? Selfish, your own needs first. Tell me the difference between strong-willed and self-willed. Okay. 
Yeah, they, they, they go their own way. Joey? Um, I was going to say something in Strongwilled. I look at it like someone Strongwilled is someone who's like very eager and like has like a goal in mind and like has to try to get it, get it done versus someone who's self-willed kind of piggybacking off what Tony said where it's like a, who has only what they want to do in mind, um, not necessarily like the best representative of their own interests behind it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the strong-willed person and the self-willed person, they're, they're both typically going to be driven and, and energetic go-getters. The difference is that the, the self-willed person is going to go his own way. He's going to do what he thinks is best, his own course. And the strong-willed person, if he's aligned with God's will, he, he can use that strong will as a good thing. I say that with parenting as well. I think many of us, have, I'm sure all of us, have had strong-willed children that's not necessarily a bad thing, though. God can use driven people. People who are strong-willed can be principled. They can take some stands and use their strong will to take the right stand. So it's not bad to be strong-willed. It's just bad to be self-willed, where you use that just for yourself, where you use your strong will, your determination to do your own thing. And that's something God can't use. He can use strong-willed people, but not self-willed people. As his stewards, remember the verse 7, that the overseer as a steward of God's household. You're not caring for your own stuff here. You're, you're caring for God's flock as an under-shepherd. And so you, you have to be on board with doing this God's way. Not your way. It's not your flock. It's an allotment. It's been entrusted to you. You're a steward. You have to give it back and give an account. And so if you're self-willed, if you're doing this for yourself, you have a hidden agenda, well, that just spells trouble. The biblical leader must be one who says and means, not my will be done, but your will, O Lord. They've submitted their wills and their purpose in life to God. And so they can be strong-willed, but their wills, though, belong to God. And so they will do what, what God wills. And that's the leader God wants. But the self-willed person is headstrong and independent to a fault. This really comes hand in hand with pride and arrogance. This person disregards all others in in favor of his own way. And he's going to lead his own way no matter the cost. You think of Napoleon in 1811. He had conquered almost all of modern Europe. All that remained was just Russia to the east. I think if you remember your history, you know what happens next. He, he just had to have it. He had to have Russia and Moscow. And all of his counselors said, no, don't do it. It's not the right time. It's not the right move. But he was maybe the definition of self-willed. He disregarded all counsel. And in June of 1812, took his French army, Continental Army, and marched east, invaded Russia. And they're just continually fighting. And the Russians continue to fight and retreat, fight and retreat. And they withdrew all the way to Moscow. And the French fought them there. But by then, winter had set in. And the French were woefully unprepared. And they were forced to return home. They, they couldn't handle that Russian winter. And 400,000 began the invasion. Only 40,000 returned with Napoleon. And it really spelled the beginning of the end for his reign. And it started because he was self-willed. He just had to do it his own way. 
And the church does not need dictators in leadership. And that's a self-willed person. Hey, maybe in the corporate world that can be a virtue, but not to God. Remember the model of Christ. Humble, meek, a sacrificial servant, willing to lay down his life for others. The problem with a self-willed leader, though, is that they're really in it for themselves, that they're also a selfish leader. This is the type of, the le- of leader who will abandon the flock when the wolves come, or who will just run and abandon ship when it's, it's advantageous to himself, He's just looking out for himself. This is not the steward of people that God wants. The person with selfish interests and, and a hidden agenda, that's... That spells real trouble for the church, doesn't it? Someone who gets into leadership, but they have a hidden agenda, not good. So really, in God's list, in my own personal list, this is really the top of the list for me, really hand-in-hand with humility of being what I would look for in a leader in this church, a small group leader, a future elder or pastor, not self-willed. Someone who is truly humble, dependent on the Lord submissive to his will. They, they prove over time, they have no hidden agenda here. They're just trying to serve the Lord and they're happy to do it God's way. I'll take that person 10 out of 10 times. Just, just give me that person. I'll follow that person. On the flip side though, guess what is behind pretty much every church split or every major church conflict. And you're going to find a person who is self-willed. Usually behind all those conflicts, there's someone who is self-willed. They won't budge. It's their way or the highway and uh, division results. There's no room for this. So let your leadership just be marked by God's will. That's all I'm trying to do here. Just be setting out like, Lord, I want to serve you. However, you would have me serve you with whatever gifts you have. Just want to serve. You're going to do it his way, according to his, his will, his word. And just be the opposite of self-willed. Be, be God-willed in all that you do and you'll be just fine. Number two, not quick-tempered. The second quality to avoid these negative qualities, not quick-tempered. He just says that next in verse seven, not quick-tempered. Now, this doesn't need a ton of explanation. I think you get it, but you can maybe chime in and, and let me know. Why, why is this such a, a big deal? Why would it be such a problem for a church leader to be quick-tempered. Yeah, the, the, that's the great answer. You know that the leader in the church is going to be tested. It's going to enter many powder keg situations that are just looking for a spark. And uh, he, he needs to be one who can diffuse a situation and have a right response to conflict. And what is anger after all, but the wrong response to conflict. It arises out of some conflict, conflict, real or perceived. And the quick-tempered person, the one prone to an outburst of anger, who has a short fuse, that's the, the wrong response. And uh, 10 out of 10 times, that will only make things worse. And this is why the biblical leader cannot be prone to anger and have a quick temper. He will just burn people right and left. Ruthann? Yeah, 
That's a great point. If you couldn't hear, make someone unapproachable. Uh, the leader needs to be approachable as a loving shepherd. And if someone is quick to bite the sheep or just kind of hit the sheep or yell at the sheep whenever they come with an issue, who would want to follow someone like that? They won't be uh, approachable. You know, in 1894, the Baltimore Orioles played Boston. You all remember that game, right? <laughs> you know, two, two players got into an argument. And tempers flared. Cooler heads did not prevail, so they started fighting. And so both teams joined the brawl. Then the fans, opposing fans, started to fight. Then someone set fire to the stands. Back then, everything was wood. The entire ballpark burned to the ground, and the fire spread and burned down 107 other structures in Boston. All because two people were short-tempered. It goes a long way. It always makes things worse. And like Kevin was mentioning, there's going to be a lot of high pressure situations, conflict in the church, and the leader has to be the one who can be a, a real peacemaker, not a peace faker or a peace breaker, but a peacemaker. You can lead people toward the right response and, and show uh, God's peace. Joey? Yeah, that's a great verse. Good on you. I actually have that verse in my notes. And uh, the key there is, is the last part, you know, in, uh, admonish the unruly. He breaks people up into, into three categories. The unruly need admonishment. The faint-hearted need encouragement. The weak need help. But then he says, but be patient with all. So it doesn't matter how a person is acting, whether they're unruly or just, just weak, they all merit patience. Not, not a quick temper, not a sharp edge. This reflects God, Exodus 34, 6, that God himself, he's slow to anger. Thankful for that, right? Thankful that God is slow to anger. We should be the same. We learned not long ago, James 1, 20, that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, does not reflect his righteousness. And so leaders must show the right response to conflict, and that is patience, not anger. Number three, continuing verse seven, he says, not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. That's pretty obvious what that means. Literally means someone who's not continually alongside wine. Just means not a, not a drunkard. Drunkenness is a sin in scripture. It's mentioned in almost every list of, of sins. You know, the, the various passages that list sins. Why do you think drunkenness is a sin in scripture? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why? Ruthann? Yeah, that, that's a good answer. And so like, you know, Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but rather be filled by the Holy Spirit. And the issue when you, you know, you're drunk, you're filled with wine, you're filled with alcohol. And the principle in that verse in Ephesians 5.18 is what you're filled with controls you. And God wants 
his people, all of his people, especially his leaders, to be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. And thereby controlled by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. When you're drunk, though, you're filled with wine. You're going to be led and controlled by your own flesh. That's why drunkenness and all, all of this would apply, of course, to drug use. Anything that takes your mind out of the equation and impairs your mind and your thinking is such a serious sin to God because it takes your sinful flesh and puts it straight up in the driver's seat. In day-to-day life, you and I, we all have it still that the sinful flesh, right? Indwelling sin still remains. In your flesh, in my flesh, it wants to sin. It wants to say bad things and do bad things. But by God's common grace, the flesh is restrained, right? Society is it has a, a restraining effect on our flesh. For believers, the Holy Spirit is a huge restraining of, uh, effect on the flesh and others, right? So we're not always running our mouth and doing crazy things. But the drunk person is because all of those restrictions and inhibitions are removed and it's just you're seeing someone's flesh just come on out. And that's why drunkenness is such a problem to God and of course for the leader as well. It's just a gateway to a whole host of other sins. And like God is opposed to someone, you know, relaxing or unwinding, for example, but what that usually leads to if someone goes too far and it's all too easy to do that, it's a gateway to the flesh coming out. And so not being addicted to wine is a part of the self-control of a leader, the self-discipline. It's also a worldliness issue and that the world today is just given over to this strong pursuit of pleasure and escapism and drugs and alcohol, and we're called to be separate. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's basically those in the world, they're still going headlong into just this worldly pursuit of you know, lust and pleasure and drunkenness. And, and uh, it's not your way anymore. And when you turn away, they might now malign you, but so be it. We just go a different direction. You know, I remember I became a Christian freshman year of college. Before I became a Christian, I joined a fraternity. First thing I did and got, you know, pretty heavy into the drinking scene, obviously, as you join a fraternity, that's kind of what you do. But then I became a Christian and by God's grace, was able to turn from drunkenness just right then and there at the moment of salvation and never was an issue again, just by his grace. But staying in the fraternity for, for that freshman year, uh, you know, I no longer was like going to the parties or drinking. I still was, you know, friendly with the guys. And, uh, but, you know, at first they didn't understand because it was, it's a change in my life. I'm just not going that direction. And it lost all appeal to me. I'm just trying to be someone else anyway. But, you know, what are we going to do for those who've come to Christ? And it's just not our way anymore. The appeal is gone. We want to honor the Lord. And though you might be maligned, well, that just that we're going a different direction now. We're, we are not self-willed anymore. We're God-willed. And he says, don't go that way. So we're not going to go that way. And uh, all the more so, the leader must be one who can lead who can not be bound by peer pressure or what other people think of him or others are maligning him. We're talking a man who is strong-willed, principled. This is the way of the Lord. I'm going to go this way, even if uh, 
others say otherwise or malign him. Not self-willed, but strong-willed God's way. That's, that's a good thing. Well, let's wrap up here. We got a couple more. Number four, not pugnacious. Again, all from verse seven here, not pugnacious. That's not a word I think we use much anymore, but it means not a fighter, not a bully, one who resorts to violence. This is a person characterized by aggressive and abusive behavior. You can kind of see a connection here. You have a person who's short-tempered, and that person gets drunk. Well, they're going to be pugnacious. They kind of all go together. In fact, in the various lists of character qualifications, drunkenness and pugnaciousness always go together. I guess that just makes sense. When someone is drunk, they're a fighter. That just typically happens. They, They go together. You know, you can learn a lot about a leader, or anybody for that matter, by how they respond when they don't get their way. When a person doesn't get his or her way, you, you learn a lot by how they respond. Does a person throw a fit, get angry, yell, attack, get violent, become pugnacious? I think this goes back to being self-willed. It just reveals someone who's do- so desperate to get his own way, to control others, and when he, he can't get his own way, when people aren't playing ball, well, he's going to lash out, get angry, and even become pugnacious, maybe even resort to intimidation or even violence. But such characteristic is a sign of weakness in a leader, not strength. You know, the, the bully in the pulpit, the bully in church or anywhere, in God's eyes, that's a sign of weakness, not strength. Christ himself was not weak, but he was meek. And he always took the high road in leadership, never resorting to evil or violence to get his will done. It's better to be wronged. Peter was the guy who's trying to cut a guy's ear off. Or really, he's trying to cut his head off, and he missed, and he hit the ear, obviously. But we are called to live peacefully with others. You can listen to Romans twelve seventeen through 21. This is an important passage for leaders just in general, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans twelve seventeen through 21. This passage for the whole church, obviously, but you know that the leaders especially have to be leading the way. So often in life, you will be wronged. People will wrong you, offend you, sin against you, commit crimes against you. How will you respond? And we're called to respond like Christ. But we don't fight fire with fire. We don't pay back evil. We, we trust the Lord to vindicate, to be the just judge. And as far as it depends on us, we'll be at peace with all men. It's a hard thing. It's pretty hard. Uh, but the leader, God, God's calling on his leaders, those in the church at whatever level, to, to be the example in this regard, to show, well, this is how you respond when you are wronged. Sometimes just, hey, it's just better to be wronged than to do what is wrong in response, than to, to be evil in response. Either way, the leader must not be pugnacious, not given over to just 
anger, violence, the, the outburst in response to others. Lastly, number five, not fond of sordid gain. He says in verse seven to finish, not fond of sordid gain. Talking about just greed or dishonest gain. Sordid means dirty or filthy. And this is speaking of the greedy person who's out to get money in all the wrong ways. This is another vice that shows up in both elder lists, the deacon list, and other places like the list in 1 Timothy 5. This one's just kind of all over the place. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, for example, he must be free from the love of money. And it's not wrong for an elder or pastor or leader to possess money, but it is wrong for money to possess them. That's the point. Like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Money, as we know, has got a strong power to control people. In a way like alcohol, it incites their flesh with its sinful desires. And it quickly can become the functional God which they serve. And again, you can see how this might tie back to being self-willed. You have a leader coming in with a hidden agenda. He has his own self-willed agenda. And look, more than a few leaders throughout church history have used the ministry as a means of financial gain. They're in it for themselves, a money-making venture. But uh, again, that must have no place in the church. I think we'd say that most believe that a politician who's been proven to have a love for money can't really be trusted. Right? Just call, it calls into question their every move, their every deal, all their business deals, all their decisions. Just There's so much doubt, like, are you really just doing this for yourself or some kickback, you're pulling strings, just someone with a proven love of money. It's hard to trust someone like that. And so it goes in the church even more so. It just calls into question their entire credibility. Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it just for yourself? You cannot serve God in wealth. And you go back to the identity of the biblical leader. Remember, the identity of the leader, sacrificial servant. Keep saying that. Get that one in your mind sacrificial servant, God is looking for people who are going to serve him alone. You can't serve God and wealth. And the leader must be one who has just divested himself or herself from that that love and lust for money. It's not wrong to have it if the Lord blesses me with it, steward it well. But that, that strong love for money, you just can't serve God and wealth at the same time. So for the leader who is to be a full-time servant, you really cannot serve wealth. Well, it's going to be about as far as we get today, right, right on time pretty much. Next time we'll look at the positive character qualifications that he lists in verse 8, and we'll throw in some bonus qualifications as well. But just as a reminder, you know, this is God's standard for elders, primarily, like we said. So, hey, make sure you are praying for your elders and pastors according to this list, right? Measure them by it. Hold them accountable to it. You know, pray that God would keep your elders and your leaders free from any of these disqualifying sins. At the same time, though, I want to make sure that you look at this standard and you also measure yourself. 
Because all throughout the New Testament, for example, isn't it clear that all of God's people should not be self-willed or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or pugnacious or fond of sordid gain? This pretty clear, right? This standard is for all of you. So even if you're not an elder, it's, it's only right for all of us at this point to, to measure ourselves with these qualifications. How do you measure up? You may not be an elder, but do you possess these negative qualities? What here do you need to continue to put off, maybe even repent of, be filled with the Spirit, saturated with God's Word, grow, overcome these areas? Perhaps some of these are real vices in your life. To the degree, maybe you need counsel, but, but do that. Work at putting off these sins and sinful ways. You know, as a final point, when you think about these negative qualities we've studied, you know, all five of them, in an interesting way, have to do with control. They all have to do with control. In order, they describe a person who is controlled by self, controlled by emotion, controlled by alcohol, controlled by violence, and controlled by money. And that's an obvious problem. Any man controlled by these things is unfit to lead. For God's leader must be controlled by the Spirit. And so if you're called to lead people, lead people away from slavery to sin, you've got to demonstrate that in your own life. Those who are still enslaved and who are being controlled by their lusts, they must be barred from leadership. They're, they're not there yet. They're not ready to lead God's people. And you too must not be controlled by these things. The call is for all of us to be spirit-filled, not self-filled, not emotions-filled, not wine-filled, not violence-filled, not money-filled. Just be spirit-filled. Again, what you're filled with controls you. Isn't that so true in life? We, we've learned that. You probably learned that by experience. Well, God wants you to be controlled by him, by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And that, that is for all of us. He died for us, for his bride, for the church. We've received that saving death. And now, having been made new and given the spirit, if you're alive, it, it, within your heart, you just, you feel compelled that the love you've received, the saving, forgiving, redeeming love, it now c- controls you and compels you to, to live for him. That we've died. And our our life is with Christ now. We're alive in him. And so why do I live? Why do you live? Well, I live for him now. That we no longer live for ourselves. But for him who died and rose on our behalf. That that should be for all of us. And if you're a leader or aspiring to be a leader, wow, make that your verse. Make that the the character of your ministry and, and your service. Even if you're just a little small group leader, that you're, you're living for him now, and that's going to affect well, how you lead and your character as well. So to you who have benefited from the death of Christ, just remember why he died. Consider your lives. What controls you? Is it the things of the world or the things of the Lord? And ensure that Christ 
controls you, that you too no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Well, that'll do it for tonight. We'll come back next time. And it'll be a part two to lesson seven on the character of the biblical leader. And so we'll, we'll leave it at that. And let's finish with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for, for sending Christ. Anytime we, we remember him in scripture, it's only right for us to pause and just worship, have a time of worship as we remember the Savior who came and died for us, that we were unworthy. We all have the sinful flesh with its lusts and desires that takes us away from you and your way. We are all self-willed rebels. You sent Christ to die for us and to redeem us, to love us. And as we receive that love now, Lord, I pray we are truly controlled by it and compelled to now live for you, that we, we all have been bought with the price. And so now we are to glorify you with our bodies, with our lives, to live for you and your purposes, which are good. And that's all to our blessing anyway, to our good. And so may that characterize all of our lives. And for those who are leaders and, and growing as leaders, let this sink in for them that they would know character matters so much. Above all, really, first and foremost, you care not about what they do or how good they can do it, but first, Lord, you care about just who they are and that they would reflect Christ. To be his under-shepherd, may they grow in his image. So grow us as we're convicted. Teach us and, and mold us more into Christ's image and for the benefit of your people and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.